Welcome to the Synaxis Podcast. A Synaxis is a liturgical gathering. It can also refer to an unveiling event. The Synaxis Podcast is a weekly gathering hosted by yours truly, Scott Jones, for the purpose of finding the life-giving healing word of the gospel and the words of the weekly lectionary passages. Join myself and a guest each week as we explore the lectionary text together. This is the place for gospel-rich, grace-saturated, and a properly worldly lens on the week's lectionary passages, all in 25 minutes or less. My guest is the Reverend Kenneth Tanner. Kenneth is a pastor of Church of the Holy Redeemer in Rochester Hills, Michigan. He writes for numerous websites and magazines, including the Huffington Post and Sojourners. Ken, welcome back to the podcast. Hey, Scott, what's happening? How are things in Michigan? Happy belated birthday, by the way. Thank you. Everything's awesome. Um, the weather's starting to get a little fallish, um, which is my this is my autumn is my favorite season in general. It's definitely my favorite season in Michigan. So good times. Well, the good times with the lectionary we have. We've got a, some great passages here, some interesting passages for preaching. The first one I'm thinking is something that most people, my guess is, won't preach on, but I could be wrong with this. Proverbs <laughs> 31, verses 10 through 31. A capable wife, who can find? Right? That's a great question. Just, you know, that's, I guess would be bad if you just got up and quoted that verse in the public. Capable wife, who can find? Your wife might be upset. You know, it might not be the way to, to really start that one up. Yeah, you know, and I, I think probably what happens is um, people shy away with from it because of um, the way it's been used uh, in contemporary or more, you know, in the recent decades in uh, American culture uh, to sort of literally describe um, what a wife is like um, in a in a marriage, um, whereas Caesarius of Arles and others, excuse me, Caesarius of Arles, is that how you pronounce that French study, um, and, and others of the of the early church fathers uh, read uh, Solomon here um, in light of Christ, uh, of the bride, uh, the church, uh, as the bride of Christ. Um, instead of, uh, in a kind of, although, I mean, if you go back and, and sort of read it literally, um, as a description of what a wife, uh, in a home is like, I mean, it does have moments in it that really don't sound a lot like, um, you know, she, she's, you know, she's an entrepreneur. Um, uh, she gets her share of the, of the wealth of the family. Um, she has this place of honor and so forth and so on. It doesn't sound like a kind of, you know, dominating model uh, in places. In other places, it kind of sounds like, you know, it sounds like this sort of the domestic bliss for a woman would be to do all of these things for her family. That's not the way the early Christians read the text. They saw Solomon as describing mystically what the church is like. The church feeds the poor. The church clothes uh, God's children in the world. The church uh, works tirelessly to uh, shelter. Um, And uh, yeah, so... Yeah, like in verse fourteen, right? She's like a she's like a ship uh, traveling across, you know, uh, the world, right? To 
bring good news to the to the world. You know, you you have this. Uh, yeah, you have the, the, these many pictures. Uh, you could you know that you could draw and you know gathering garments and things like this. I mean, you, you have these patristic images, right, of, of of priestly garments and these things. Yeah. So so they read it as a description of this is what the church looks like in the world. Um, clothing, shelter, care for the poor, um, not being lazy, um, not eating the bread of, of, of um, you know, just a kind of an inert and unactive life. But uh, 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 the, the church's combined life, its witness to God in the world is the way it, it has an industry of care. I mean, the, the church is an industry of care um, uh, for others, for, for the poor and for the world. And uh, so, you know, and, and of course, uh, in America, um, some people have sort of, and probably other places, have read it more literally as, this is your place, woman. Um, you know, uh, do these things and, you know, your, your husband and your children will rise up and, and bless you when you, um, you know, sort of fulfill this role in our lives or whatever. And, and I think that uh, misses the point. So, Yeah, and you do have this journey in all throughout the Old Testament where Israel starts as a child and becomes a bride, right? Like, mm-hmm. like, you know, the, oftentimes Israel is the spouse of Yahweh, you know, and you think about her husband is honored in the gates, right? This idea of God being honored, you know, in the land. Yeah. And so, so you have this picture of, and also, you know, it's funny because Israel as a child is to learn the different ways, you know, the, 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 the wisdom versus, you know, the, the ways Folly. of deceit. Right. And so it, it's interesting that, that, Acquainted with wisdom, she actually becomes the bride. She becomes the the picture. Yeah, this is sort of late in, late in the book, right? So um, yeah, this is the end of the book. It's yeah. an acrostic, right? Like so, each, the beginning of each line is a different letter of the alphabet, which is kind of a Hebrew form for saying we're summing up, right? We're doing the A to Z kind of kind of picture here. Oh wow, we're and we're and and how does that? Where where are you getting that? That's great in the in the in the continuous repetition of she yeah i i did most people people point out that 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 from the whole chapter is like an acrostic like if you look at the beginning of each uh segment you have a different letter like you know like in english should be a b c d so mm-hmm. each line begins with a subsequent oh oh so for for in the hebrew it goes right on through right i think so yeah wow uh, that's although cool. I, I, although never, I haven't checked the hebrew i never myself, heard that so. before yeah that's awesome so, yeah, I think you're that, always yeah. you're always full of these like like little you know uh, points of, uh, of of literary wisdom that I, I I'm unaware of. Yeah, some of which are not really useful for preaching, but some of which uh, right you know right once in a while they are. But yeah, I mean I think you're right though that that one of the things that's that's I think you know this is I read somewhere this is like the it's interesting too. This was not in the lectionary before the revised common lectionary. But I think you're right that the temptation to sort of preach this in terms of gender roles is sort of foolish. But, you know, the, the way it's interesting that Solomon asks for wisdom, right? And God is pleased and he's granted. And so the one who asks for the grace of wisdom, you know, you have all these, all these prayers in Cramner's book where you, you pray something, right? God, give us this. And then you, you, you answer what it would look like if, if God answered the prayer, you know, give us, you know, light so we may walk faithfully in your way or something, right? 
you, you offer in the prayer a picture of what happened if God granted the request. It's almost like if we prayed for wisdom, this picture of this woman in Proverbs 31 would be what we'd look like if the prayer was answered. Yeah. And, uh, and, and I, and, you know, neither of us is denying that within the original, you know, when this was originally written and within its culture, um, certainly, uh, he probably was describing this in terms of gender roles, but, uh, in Christ, uh, the text is transfigured and it's the way the first Christians read it is not a, you know, it's not a, a description of a wife in a um, domestic situation. It's a description of the entire body of Christ, male, female, Jew, Greek, slave, free, um, and uh, and what, what our common vocation in the world is. So it, the, the, the text is transfigured. So, I mean, we can, we can accept what it is, but also accept the wisdom of the church um, that it's, it's really been transfigured in the person of Jesus. On to the book of James, which maybe more people will be preaching on. James 3, verses 13, 4 through 3, and 7 and 8. Who's wise and understanding among you? Show by your good life that your works are done with gentleness, born of wisdom. Then he talks about envy, selfish ambition, and and what that kind of causes in community. And that's interesting. He says, these conflicts and disputes among you, where do they come from? Do they not come from your cravings that are at war within you? You want something and do not have it, so you commit murder. And you covet something and cannot obtain it, so you engage in disputes and conflicts. It's interesting because you look there and you covet something, can't obtain it. You you think you're going to steal it. But no, instead you engage in disputes and conflicts, right? Uh you don't you don't have because you do not ask. Um, so this is really interesting that, that here James is, is is saying that the cause of strife is our own internal sort of it, what would Augustine say concupiscence, right? Wrongly ordered desires. Yeah, and and I think you know the the whole book, and I, I've been preaching through James for this entire way, and um, I mean it, it just. It just seems like a love letter straight from the heart of uh, God to um, contemporary culture. Um, and uh, I, I, I spoke about, you know, um, yesterday about uh, the tongue and its destructive capacities. Um, and, um, you know, we, we, we have this like speck of the divine capacity to make worlds by what we by what we say and or to destroy worlds by what we we say um, destroy people or to bless people and so forth um, I think here he's kind of I mean you have to read it all as one long argument and here he's saying um, you know having measured your words teacher um, why don't you you know in silence begin to show your wisdom by what you do a gentleness born of your silence um and uh so we know that envy and jealousy ambition again um speaking right to the heart of our contemporary problem this this and we you know obviously Jesus speaks to this in the gospel too so we can tie this all together but um you know 
in order to be raised up to one of the fathers says in order for the tree to grow up into the heights it has to it has to sink its roots deeply into the ground and so humility right um starting from you know the earth um and and really getting your feet firmly grounded and your mouth silent um you can move away from this kind of ambition um for acquisition um and envy about what other people have because you have um and we'll we'll again this comes up in the the gospel you have become like a child um yeah um i i I just think this whole question of of selfish ambition um is a real um it's a word for us in 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 this moment for sure yeah, it's interesting that there's a commentator, Thorsten Moritz, who says, "Wow, what a name!" About the, I know that's a great name. He says this eloquent language, such as such as that by the so-called sophists, though seemingly humble, can easily be used in arrogant and boastful ways that lead to strife in the in the community. How does this fit with the astonishing claim in four two? You kill and covet. The best explanation is not the literal one, though, although some have suggested that literal killings were committed in early Christianity. Right, right. This is an unnecessary assumption for a number of reasons. One, verse 18 shows that James is again dependent on Jesus' teaching. Jesus, however, spoke proverbially of killing each other in, in Matthew 5. In particular, he, he too argued that our use of language can amount to killing somebody. The phrase, yes. and you covet, uses the same terminology by which the Jewish zealots were known. James mm. tacitly encourages some of his readers to think of themselves as equally fanatical as those Jewish terrorists. There, the problem was nationalism. Here, it is selfish ambition. The solution to both situations would have been the sowing of peace. Yeah. Um, we, we have this power um, within us, um, granted to us by the divine image, um, to pursue the good. Um, and, uh, and, and here again, I mean, gentleness is mentioned a couple of times. Um, and, um, you know, I, I, I don't think that, that gentleness is considered a, a virtue these days. Um, yeah. Look at social media. How many times do people try to be agreeable or sort of split the difference or be, you know, almost everything is sort of, I, I mean, Christians with it's Christians, take no prisoners. Yeah, and, and everybody is sort of, you know, it's so tribal. You know, it's, it's interesting that the church all too often, rather than being a sort of respite from the tribalness, right, becomes another place to play it out, you know, this tribalness that's in the broader culture. Earlier in the chapter, he uses the word peaceable. And again, he talks about being a peacemaker. Um, and oh, he, and it actually it comes up again here. Um, so, you know, it's... Being gentle and being a peacemaker is not considered like something to have on your resume. Um, and I, but, and, and, and from the culture's point of view, um, but uh, from the godly, uh, from the godly wisdom that we have in silence, um, we, we know that, uh, that it's right, this humility, gentleness, uh, peaceableness is something the world needs. Um, and it's the reason that the church is in the world as the grand uh, woman who 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 clothes and uh, feeds and shelters and 
is has an industry of care in the world. This is a this is a reminder that we're you know not to um, not to seek for ourselves. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly in order to spend what you get on your pleasure. Um, yeah. So in the, in the fathers, I was reading through some of the fathers, and, and they really, really dwell on this, you know, not praying, um, you know, praying from selfish, you know, for selfish reasons, and that's why prayers aren't answered. Um, and, and there's this resist the devil. I think that's so important. I mean, I, you know, I, 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 I don't think I have enough understanding or wisdom to talk about the nature of Satan, but I do think that reading the New Testament as David Bentley Hart translated it really took, put, put me back in that worldview that we ha- really truly have an enemy that we have to resist. My favorite Satan is Al Pacino in that movie. What was that? <laughs> the, the Devil's Advocate. I love yeah, that. Perfect. On to the gospel reading, Mark 9, verses 30 through 37. Now, this is sort of a parallel, or they're echoes of last week's lectionary reading here, right? Last week we had Mark 8, where Jesus was saying, unless you take up your cross, you know, you can't be my disciple. Mm. And Peter is really resistant to a suffering Messiah, king on a cross. And here you see that again, that he's saying that the Son of Man, Jesus is saying the Son of Man has to be betrayed into human hands and they don't understand and we're afraid to ask him then as they're going to Capernaum they're in the house and he says what, are you, what were you arguing about in the way and they were arguing about who was the greatest <laughs> and, so, you know, so ironically, then he says whoever so wants absolutely to be, wants human to be first they go to be the last and servant of all if they want to be first and then you know he takes this little child and puts him among them and says, unless you become like him, you can't be my disciple. Just, first of all, beautiful, you know. I just don't think sometimes we don't, we just don't sit back and see the simplicity and beauty of that, of taking a little one who, in that culture, you know, didn't have the same value that we place on on children, or God help, God help us, I hope we do, Um today and you know take he takes the child into his arms and says welcome you know this and this disposition and attitude that's free of ambition that's free of of who you know I am I first or last in this situation who just is there to to love and to receive love um that is this is the disposition that brings you, that draws you to God. Yeah, and it's interesting, I find here, that Jesus in Mark 8 says, unless you take up your cross, you can't be my disciple. And here, after after putting out a similar message about the Son of Man needing to be delivered up, right, to the authorities and to be, to, to be martyred here, crucified, he... He then says, unless you be like this little child. So I assume, you know, it's interesting. There seems to be a connection between these two things, between cross-bearing and childlikeness. Robert Capon says this about this text. Uh, Jesus sensing the friction 
without even, as far as we can tell, being privy to the contention, brings up the subject by asking the loaded question, what were you discussing on the way? Mark observes that the disciples, presumably out of embarrassment, simply didn't answer. But Jesus goes straight to the point anyway. If I may put all three accounts into one, the episode is as follows. Jesus calls the twelve and says to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all, servant of all. Then he takes a child, puts him in the midst of them, and tells them that unless they turn and become like children, they will never enter the kingdom at all, adding that whoever humbles himself like this child is in fact the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Finally, he says that whoever receives one such child in his name receives not only him, but the one who sent the him. The father. And that, and that he who is least among you is the, is the one who is great. I, and Capon goes on, I set this down as yet more evidence that Jesus, as he begins the parables of grace, is preoccupied with the notion that the work of the Messiah will be accomplished not by winning, but by losing. Out of the five mm-hmm. items in my, in oh my, my already off-repeating off catalog of losing categories, the last, the least, the lost, the little, and the dead, he has, in a mere handful of verses, just ticked off no less than three. Not only that, but in holding up his example, a little boy or a girl, the Greek word is actually a neuter diminutive. He has included the note of little childhood I have already alluded to, and which Jesus again and again emphasizes. So here you, My goodness. you, you seem to have this sort of, uh, there's a lot going on in, in this argument with the disciples and then Jesus sort of using it as a kind of, again, picture of what the, you know, the, not just, you know, that the objective way that redemption will be brought about and the subjective way it's experienced are very similar. Death and resurrection, right? Humbling and losing is winning. Yeah. So going back to this welcoming of the child and the way that Capon, um, yeah, wow, so good. One imagines him taking the child from the darkness at the outskirts of their gathering, bringing him into the center and saying, this is who I am in your midst. And if you understand this, this child represents also what the father is like. You know, it's not just that you're welcoming. You're, that to welcome us is to welcome this kind of agendaless, um, uh, non power, power, powerless, powerless um, love, right? Um, you know, and you know, sometimes I think, you know, we can, I mean, you know, uh, when we're talking about just human children, I think we can over emphasize their innocence, <laughs> but, right, but right. Jesus isn't sentimentalizing right, the child. Right, here, right, right. It, right. It's, a, it's, it's, the child isn't, it's not be cute. My disciple, it's right. powerlessness. Yes. Uh, marginal. This uh, you know, is not- what I am like among you. So I am, of course, the child was not considered first. You know, the child was last. You know, the child was not the master. The child was the servant. And um, and so, you know, it, it and, you know, and Capon, I think, writes really beautifully, too, of, of the moment at the Last Supper where Jesus is on his knees and he's washing the feet of the disciples and enacting. This is what God looks like. This is what the father looks like. He is the one on his knees, um, you know, um, uh, as the custodian, as the janitor, as the of the cosmos and of each of us, it's just a complete. It just turns everything absolutely on its head, and makes their argument on the way just ludicrous, right? Um, and and all of our internal arguments about who is am I first in this situation? Where am I in this? Where where am I in the room? Where am I in the order of you know? 
uh, people who are preachers? Where, where am I in the order of my profession? Um, where am I in the order of my family? Um, and so forth and so on. Just ludicrous when the one who is the origin of all things and who holds all things together is um, shown by Jesus, personified by Jesus as this little one. Yeah, and you know, this great line, which is great for preaching, it's so clear, whoever wants to be first must be last of all and serve it all. I think of Luther's The Freedom of a Christian, where he just sets out, you know, in the beginning, two seemingly paradoxical statements, right? A Christian is perfectly free, Lord of all, subject to none. A Christian is perfectly dutiful, dutiful servant of all, subject to all. And he's basically saying that the first part of the treatise how the inner spiritual person is justified and set free by faith, faith alone, in Christ, and then how that person saved by faith now is servant of all, right? That, that, that they're, you know, the first, now they know they're God's first love in Christ, they can love, uh, they're free to love others. They don't need to engage in religious athleticism and try to build their climb up the stairway to heaven. And God. But Jesus has, has come down to meet us on earth, and knowing that, it leaves us really free. You know, as Luther says, our works are not for God. God has no need of our works. They're for our neighbor. Mm. We can actually, we can, now, now that we know our, ourselves in Christ, we can actually turn to the neighbor in real love. And that takes us, you know, full circle back to the personification of the body of Christ as the woman who clothes and shelters and feeds and industrializes entrepreneur is the entrepreneur of care, you know, of, of the least. Um, and so, yeah, praise God. Praise God and blessings on your preaching this week and to the preaching and, and hearing of our listeners. Everyone who hears us, we, we, we bless you in this very difficult task um, that, that, that we who are very imperfect vessels are called to do um, God's peace. Thanks for listening to the Synaxis Podcast. If you like what you heard, please go to iTunes, give it a rating, write a review, and subscribe, or pass it along to a friend via email, or say something about it on social media. All of those things help so much as we're just getting off the ground. Thanks to Ken for being on the podcast, and thank you again for listening. And until next time, friends, fare thee well.